Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cervical cancer with Dr. Golden Menderes. Dr. Menderes is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Golden, maybe we'll start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about what you do. Absolutely. I'm a GYN oncologist. I take care of women with a wide range of uh, gynecologic uh, complaints and mainly specialize in gynecologic cancers and minimally invasive treatment of the same when applicable. And so we're talking today about cervical cancer uh, in honor of Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, but maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit more about cervical cancer. How common is it? Who does it affect? Um, how lethal is it? Cervical cancer is uh, the third most common gynecologic cancer that we see and diagnose in the United States. And um, if we do see about uh, 14,000 cases every year with about 4,000 deaths recorded. And it does affect uh, women of uh, fertility ages starting early 20s. But most common diagnosis is usually women in their uh, 50s and, and 60s. And and tell us more about that. So. How does it present? I mean, what what does cervical cancer look like uh, for somebody who might be listening, thinking, how does one know whether they have cervical cancer or not? The most common symptoms that the patient uh, report to us when they have cervical cancer are uh, abnormal bleeding, such as postcoital bleeding in the form of bleeding after sex or pain during sex and abnormal vaginal discharge. And these patients are the ones usually have localized disease. However, in about 15% of the time, we might have uh, patients with metastatic disease where the tumor from cervix uh, starts spreading to the other parts of pelvis and the abdomen. And those patients might have more abdominal, more pelvic pain, or pain radiating from pelvis to their thighs from compression of the tumor um, onto the uh, nerves in the pelvis. And so is is cervical cancer something that is easily treatable, or is it something that, um, that we struggle with? Um, I think the main uh, motivation uh, in us as gynecologic oncologists or general gynecologists is to prevent cervical cancer more than having to treat it because we do have a very, very effective uh, screening modality, which essentially stems from uh, the main uh, risk factor of of the cancer, which is HPV or human papilloma virus. We do know that uh, infection with the HPV virus is the main risk factor for cervical cancer, and it does cause more than 90% of cases diagnosed in the United States. So if we can essentially uh, prevent the patients from being exposed to HPV, I believe we will be able to eradicate this cancer and not not even have to worry about treating the same. 
and the many ways that we can offer our patients in terms of prevention. One and the most commonly utilized uh, preventive strategy in the United States is a pop test, pop smears or cervical cytology. Most patients know this as pop smears where they go to see their gynecologist once a year. And based on the most recent recommendations and guidelines, uh, women over the age of 21 uh, would start getting these pop smears every three years. Um, the second uh, preventive strategy we can have is HPV testing, meaning uh, we pick up the sample from the cervix and we see if this patient has any HPV uh, exposure to their cervix, and if so, what kind in terms of their um, their impact on causing changes in a cellular level. And doing so, uh, we do have quite a big window between HPV exposure, even to development of precancer cells and cervical cancer. And this is usually about 10 to 15 years from the time of HPV exposure to development of high-grade uh, precancer cells and eventually cervical cancer. So uh, if we can uh, essentially educate our patients about the importance of cervical cancer prevention strategies, I believe uh, we will be able to eradicate this cancer in the, in the next decade or two. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I want to certainly spend a, a great deal of time talking about prevention and preventative strategies. But I, I think that one of the things that often can get people towards thinking about preventing something is the ramifications of what if you don't, um, which is why I started with, you know, how many cases do we see and how many people die? And when you, you think about 14,000 cases being diagnosed every year and 4,000 dying, so roughly roughly a, a third or so uh, of cases um, uh, in terms of a mortality to incidence ratio. But the other thing that people oftentimes want to prevent, uh, aside from death, is the ramifications of treatment, which is why I asked, you know, is this something which is easily treated? So in other words, you know, uh, something where, you you can simply uh, treat it locally with, say, vinegar, or is this something that, um, if not found early, often leads to larger surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation, ramifications of that, so that there really is an incentive to finding cancer earlier uh, through screening, um, as well as uh, preventing it altogether. Absolutely. So um, when we do see our patients on an annual basis and do their cervical pop smears, if we were to detect high-grade precancer cells or by just inspecting their cervix, we do see a mass and we biopsy it. That will help us get a diagnosis early on when we think the disease is going to be localized to their cervix. And this is about 45% of the time, which is a huge number. We want to keep that number, uh, you know, increasing. Uh, when the patients are 
diagnose with uh, localized disease to their cervix based on their age, based on their future fertility desire, we have a range of treatments that we have available. For example, we might have a uh, 25-year-old who is having the second cervical pap smear in her entire life, and now she has either high-grade precancer cells or with a biopsy, a very early stage cervical cancer. Uh, this patient can potentially be cured by as simple as doing a cervical cone biopsy in about 10 minutes and getting those high-grade precancer or early-stage cancer cells out of the cervix. That's again right now in 45% of the cases if we were to have a patient with cervical cancer. In another 35%, we have uh, the tumor that is essentially starting in the cervix and started um, moving to the uh, the other pelvic structures. And those patients do get curative intent chemo radiation, and we do have great success rates. In uh, another 15%, unfortunately, the patients will uh, show up to our office with distant metastatic disease. And in those patients, the goal of treatment is mainly palliation and not curative. But I do want to focus on on the 45% of the patients when they present with localized disease. Again, based on uh, their future fertility desires, either we can do the con and help with the getting eradicating the tumor, or uh, if it is a bit more extent, extensive than just a simple lesion in the cervix, we can even offer the patients uh, tracheolectomies where we remove the cervix, but we are able to preserve the uterus and, and the ovaries. Therefore, those patients can potentially uh, get pregnant in the future and have uh, have a pregnancy uh, in their own uterus. So I think that's a quite uh, impactful treatment with preservation of the fertility. Right. And and so the 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 key here is really to find it early. Um so where it's localized because the the options available for localized disease seem really very good, but the options for metastatic disease are are limited. Um, in terms of in terms of curative treatment, once it's metastatic, that that's really um, difficult to achieve. The horse is kind of out of the barn, as they say. You summarized it really, really well there, Doctor Chakwar. Thank you. So, so I guess I guess this brings us back to you know kind of screening and prevention. And so before we get into that, I, I want to talk a little bit more about risk factors. So you mentioned HPV, and I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about HPV, what it is, um, and how uh, how you get HPV. Um, HPV is the main, again, virus that is accounting for over uh, 90% of the of the cases we see. And essentially, when we do look at the studies uh, done in the population, we see 80% of sexually active adults acquiring HPV by age 50. So if 80% of the population has the virus, why is 
you know, certain patient population more predisposed to experience the changes on their cervix as opposed to others not having to deal with any of it. And uh, there is quite a bit of uh, process between acquiring the HPV to development. And main uh, risk factor that we are seeing is essentially how early you get exposed to the HPV, meaning the onset of sexual intercourse, how many sexual partners one might have, and therefore increasing the risk to exposure to HPV. And when you have it, based on the immunity and the immune system of the patient, most healthy adults will get rid of the HPV virus in two years versus some others with medical comorbidities or immunosuppression tend to have persistent HPV infection in their cervix. And also the type of HPV that the patient has make a difference in terms of HPV infection progressing into precancer and cancer cells. We do know that there are over 40 different HPV types, and we do know that certain types are oncogenic versus certain types are not. HPV 16 and 18 namely accounts for over 70% of all, of all cervical cancers we see. And when the patient acquires this uh, virus, uh, it infects this uh, particular junction in their cervix, which is called squamocolumnar junction. And if the infection were to persist in the cervix, it might possibly progress uh, it might cause progression of a clone of the epithelial cells and it causes uh, it changes from a persistent viral infection to a precancer initially and then to carcinoma and invasion where patient might have either regional disease or, or metastatic disease. And in the last five years, uh, there has been some studies looking into the genomics of this uh, process. Before then, we mainly uh, didn't understand which patients would have more persistent infection than others. And with the research that has been completed in the last uh, five years or so, we do know certain metabolic pathways and changes in the same, such as PI3K and MAPK pathways, cause a persistence of this infection in particular patient, and they are more prone to have progression of those cellular changes from an infection to a pre precancerous change. So we'll pick up this whole discussion on, you know, the factors that predispose some people to getting cervical cancer as opposed to others right after we take a short break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about cervical, cervical cancer with my guest, Dr. Goulden Menderes. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where a wide spectrum of advanced strategies for the diagnosis and treatment of gynecologic cancers are offered. To learn more, visit yalecancercenter.org slash G-Y-N-O-N-C. There are over 16.9 million cancer survivors in the U.S. and over 240,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. The return to normal activities and relationships may be difficult, and cancer survivors may face other long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. 
Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital, to keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. The Smilo Cancer Hospital Survivorship Clinic focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to take steps to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Goulden Menderes. We're learning about the care of women with cervical cancer in honor of Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Now, right before the break, Golden, you were mentioning that 80% of women, by the time they're sexually active, um, will have HPV, uh, but only a subpopulation of that total cohort will actually develop cervical cancer. And I wanted to dig a little bit more into that. You mentioned that there were some things that predisposed women. So, for example, the number of of sexual partners, uh, how early uh, you were exposed to HPV or how early you you started um, having sexual relationships. Um, But I was wondering if there are other factors. Uh, Have we found anything about racial differences, for example? Have we found anything about um, other predisposing factors, uh, social habits, smoking, alcohol that might increase or decrease one's risk of developing cervical cancer when exposed to HPV? The HPV exposure is for everyone, as you mentioned, and 80% of the population is a huge number. And certain other risk factors that kind of play a role in turning an HPV infection to a persistent one and subsequently to progression to precancer, smoking does play a significant role in uh, enabling the persistence of the virus in the cervix and therefore it is a part of the counseling we do in the office every day when we do see them and when we get a chance to connect with them and educate them we do inquire if the patient is a smoker or not the other population uh, of patients that are at higher risk than the general group is the patients with a low socioeconomic status. And that kind of uh, is essentially hand in hand with not uh, being uh, knowledgeable about the preventive strategies or simply not having access to the same. So um, countries like Australia and New Zealand, where they have over 80% uptake, their numbers are extremely, extremely small. So we do want to educate our patients about the importance of seeing their uh, providers annually having cervical pop test every three years, starting age 21. And by doing so, we can also have an opportunity to tell them about uh, prophylactic vaccinations that we have available here in the U.S., which is extremely efficacious. Right. So so thinking about cervical cancer, one of the things that you mentioned before the break is that over 90 percent, I think 95 percent of all cervical cancers are caused by HPV. Is that right? Over, yeah, 99% is caused by HPV. So we know how this whole process starts. So the goal is to essentially uh, prevent the progression of a 
HPV to become a persistent or even a step earlier to kind of uh, break that cycle of patients being exposed to HPV. So do we essentially not see cervical cancer in people who have never had sexual intercourse? Essentially, non-HPV related cervical cancer is not a clinically significant concern. We do see this cancer because of the exposure to the HPV, correct? So in people, say, you know, people who either uh, because of personal choice or because of their vocation, whether they're uh, part of the nunnery or, or whatever, have chosen not to have sexual contact. Um, do the guidelines with regards to pap smears and HPV vaccinations equally apply? Um, it is hard to kind of get to know everyone on an individual level and kind of be certain that there will not be any HPV exposure. So I think for essential uh, prevention, we would bring it up with every patient and explain them how this can be a very effective preventive measure, those populations would be probably a very, very small uh, percentage of the patients that we see every day. But yes, they are they are essentially at a non-existent risk if they say they will, they will, they have never had any vaginal intercourse. So when you were talking about pap smears, you mentioned that this is for early detection. And we talked before the break about how important early detection is because treatment when you catch the disease earlier is really very efficacious. Pap smear should be every three years, uh, starting at the age of 21. So if you are an individual who, let's say, started having um, intercourse earlier than age 21, or conversely, if you're an individual who has not had intercourse until, say, the age of 35, should the age at which you start um, getting a pap smear depend on the age at which you started to have sexual intercourse? In other words, is the 21 just a general guideline for the general population, given what we know about the general population? It should definitely be tailored to the patient. And this has been a big uh, discussion at a national level in terms of providing the general population with the most effective preventive strategies and not exposing young women to procedures like colposcopies and cervical biopsies in an exceeding rate. And therefore, if a patient is uh, getting starting to get sexually active at age 15, because the young patients are more likely to clear the virus given their general uh, medical conditions and the unnecessary uh, cervical biopsies and cytology essentially damaging their cervix when they will potentially be getting pregnant and carrying pregnancies. H21 in the last guidelines was uh, found to be a fair uh, start for general population. Um, anything below H21 has been shown to essentially expose young women to these colposcopies and biopsies without really changing the diagnosis of cancer or the incidence of the, the, the disease since there is such a high latency of 10 to 15 years 
between the exposure to high-grade precancer and cancer. On the other hand, if a patient is starting to get sexually active at age 35, are we putting her through unnecessary uh, risk or are we, you know, hurting the cervix by doing these pap smears? The, you know, uh, the, the trauma to the cervix is very minimum and it is hard to kind of um, cover a big uh, population if we were to wait until age 35. So I, I kind of explain the patient how these guidelines are set up to kind of target as big of a population as possible and explain them how this pap smear will potentially impact uh, the diagnosis of any precancer cells. And uh, based on their age, based on their sexual preferences, we might either be able to start the screening a little later or be able to offer them more uh, prolonged intervals between the two testing. Meaning uh, instead of doing a cervical pap smear every three years, we can prefer to do an HPV testing, which can be done every five years. But the bottom line is that we don't want to overscreen the population either, especially in younger ages when they are more likely to clear the virus and kind of put them through um, unnecessary cervical biopsies since yeah. the persistence is less likely to happen as well as progression from infection to precancer. So in the last few minutes that we have left, I really want to dive into vaccination. We've just been through another viral pandemic um, where vaccines have been uh, very much in the news and there has been some skepticism about vaccines. There has been some hesitancy about vaccines. So tell us a little bit more about the HPV vaccine who should get it, when they should get it, how effective it is, how long it's been around. Um, help us to to kind of get the word out about what this vaccine is all about. Absolutely. So we do know that there are over 40 different types of HPV. And again, 80% of the population, which is a huge proportion, will be exposed. So the goal with vaccination is to provide the patient with the vaccine before the exposure. And we do know that the most common two oncogenic or cancer-causing HPV types are 16 and 18, which accounts for 70% of all cervical cancer. Then we do have a, an additional uh, five-plus different subtypes of HPV that are as oncogenic as 16 and 18, which will cover an additional 20% of cervical cancer. So the initial idea of vaccination uh, came from, again, uh, breaking the cycle of exposing the patient and intervening before the exposure and immunizing the patient against the virus. So the first vaccination, the first HPV vaccine that was developed was uh, uh, covering two different valents, the HPV 16 and 18, which we said was responsible from 70% of cervical cancers. Over the years, over the last decade, we got approved by an additional, uh, two additional HPV vaccines, uh, Gardasil and Gardasil 9. And in the US, uh, we have been uh, using the Gardasil 9, which is the nine valent vaccine. And that is the most efficacious one. The rate limiting step with that vaccine is the cost, which we are able to cover in the US, but not in many different parts of the world. 
So um, here we are lucky that we have the resources we have and we can essentially provide these for our patients. And by offering these nine different types of HPV in the vaccine, we are immunizing the patients to nine different kinds, which will then account for over 90% of high-grade precancer or cancer-causing types. And the other part of the question was equally uh, excellent. When should we offer this vaccine to our patients? Is it okay to offer it when they come to get their pap smear at age 21? Or if they see us for the first time at age 35, should we offer it? So the recommended age to offer HPV prophylactic vaccine is uh, age 11 to 12. And it can be offered as early as nine years, according to the last uh, latest research that we have. So by providing this vaccine to both males and females, we are making as many patients immune to this virus before exposure and before initiating sexual uh, intercourse. And um, that way, the cause of a cervical cancer, which HPV is, 99% of the time is being taken off the table. Dr. Gulden Menderes is an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.